be uninterrupted as we go through our message. Micah. We're in Micah chapter 6, if you would please. Micah chapter 6. And uh, take you maybe a moment to find that. That's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, while you look for that, I uh, just want to again wish you as a uh, as a, either if you're part of a family here, if you're visiting with us, uh, to uh, have a Merry Christmas. I hope you have a wonderful week this week. You know, in Christmas, uh, we see the four stages of man. If you've noticed this when you have uh, children or if you have a husband and if you have a father, the first stage of man is one in which he believes in Santa Claus. The second stage of man is when he doesn't believe in Santa Claus. The third is when he is Santa Claus. Some of you are in that stage there. And then the fourth is when he looks like Santa Claus, right? Those are the four stages of man. Uh, that we, we, You just figure out which stage you're in, amen? Uh, the pressure is always on every Christmas season to find that perfect gift. I heard about a couple who was busy shopping just before Christmas at the mall, and, and they got separated. The husband went his own way, and the wife went kind of her way. And, and then she needed him for something, so she called him on the cell phone and says, Where are you at in the mall? And he answers, he says, do you remember that jeweler that we went to about 10 years ago and you fell in love with that diamond necklace and I told you then that I couldn't afford to buy it but that one day I'd get it for you? Well, little tears are already starting to run down her face as she says, yes, I do, I do remember that store. And uh, all kinds of romantic thoughts were flooding her when he said, I'm in the sporting goods store right next to that jeweler. Uh, Put your effort in to find the right gift. Amen. Better not get the wrong one. It takes just a little joy out of Christmas season. Now, one question that I hear uh, often, and especially here in America, we're so blessed, we have so much. We'll ask the question, what do you get the man that has everything? You ever asked that question before? What do you get the man, or woman for that matter, that has everything? And if you go, there's actually some ideas you can get from Amazon that I found interesting. There is the redneck back scratcher. It's just a little rake, just a little garden rake that he can scratch his back with. Uh, there's a book that you can buy, How to Traumatize Your Children, Seven Proven Methods to Help You Mess Up Your Kids with Skill. You might say my husband already has that all down. Uh, there are sizzle bacon-scented dryer sheets. Somebody say amen. I didn't know those existed. That's great. Ideas, ideas, if you need some ideas. There's a salami bouquet. It's just like it sounds like. It's a salami bouquet. Amen. There's beard ornaments. There's all kinds of things you can get for the one that has everything. But we probably all have that one person in our life. It's really hard to figure out what to buy a gift for, what to get for them. They have everything that you can already think of. And if it's something they don't have, you can't afford it anyway to get it for them. So we ask that question, what can we get them this year? That question kind of brings to my mind another question. If I, after all, if we will be reminded again, it is Jesus' birthday we're celebrating. Amen? It is not our birthday, it's Jesus' birthday that we're celebrating. So why not, uh, as we ponder, what we can get Jesus for Christmas? And uh, what do you get Jesus 
for Christmas because it's his birthday. We ought to give him something. What would he appreciate? Now, thinking about this might bring to that question, what do you get the one that has everything? Because after all, he is the creator of all things. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, 2. Uh, he's also, according to Colossians 1, 17, he's the one that holds all things together. And so what do you give someone who not only has everything, but he actually made everything? That's a tough question. Well, the Bible has the answer for you. And I want to look at it this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ left his wish list for us to see, and the answer is found in a little book called Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets, and it's called these are called the minor prophets not because they're any less important than any other part of the Bible, but because the books are a little bit smaller, and so that's what we call them, the minor prophets. I want to start reading at chapter 6, verse number 6 of Micah. The Bible says, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Father, I pray this morning that you'd help us in these next few minutes we have together as we look at your word, challenge us in a specific way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The name Micah means who is like God. Micah lived about 700 years before the birth of Christ. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. While Isaiah was a little bit more like an aristocrat, uh, Micah was a country boy. He was from a little town called Morasheth, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He was the kind of guy, if you read the, his book, you see that he was a blunt plain-spoken kind of prophet. He loved the common man. He hated corrupt politicians. His book is a condemnation of religious and political rulers who use their position to take advantage of the people. You could really, if you wanted to, as you read throughout the book, you almost see a, a common theme with him and social reform. You could call him the prophet of social reform. The book of Micah comes right after Jonah. And as the book of Jonah closes, you remember the story there, the Ninevites are on their knees before God, they're repenting, and they're making right, uh, they're making themselves humble before the Lord. But by the time Micah begins writing, the Assyrians have went back to their wicked ways. The doom of Israel that was feared by Jonah is imminent. It could happen at any time. The Assyrian troops are about to terrorize the land. And Micah writes in his book, almost as if he's been reading our newspapers. Let me show you uh, different sections in here. We're not really going to go throughout all the passages. It's a short book. I encourage you to read it and get the idea of it. But three phrases describe the situation of those days in the days of Micah. Number one, political tension. Uh, Israel was caught between three warring nations, Assyria, Egypt, and the Philistines. The greatest threat came from the Assyrians. Uh, they had forced a tax on Israel and in exchange for peace, and so it made the Israelites almost like slaves to the Assyrians. 
because of their desire for peace. Now, it led to national oppression. It led to basically slavery to these people. Now, we might not be in the exact same position, but I don't think anybody today could argue that we live in a time of political tension. All you have to do is turn on your television, turn on your uh, radio, and listen to the news on either one, and you'll hear all about political tension. People are so polarized today that everything seems to be politicized. Have you ever noticed that? Even the weather will be politicized. Uh, patriotism is politicized. And then some, a virus comes out, and it also is politicized. Everything in today's day and age seems to be politicized because of the political tension that's in our nation. Folks on either side of the aisle are unable or seem unable to even talk civilly with one another. This week, if you saw the news almost every day, some kind of violence broke out at some kind of protest throughout the week. As it was in Micah's day, a day of political tension, I think we could say the same is true even in our world uh, that we see as well. Secondly, in Micah's day, there was religious corruption. Micah condemned the priests who took bribes and then said whatever the people wanted to hear. Wicked men usually can find a religion that will accommodate their sins. In Micah's day, false prophets were willing to say whatever the people wanted to hear. Can I tell you, if you read the book of Micah, you'll find that the seeker-friendly church did not start in America. The seeker-friendly church started all the way back in the days of Micah. Uh, people already were saying what people wanted to hear. The establishment wanted to hear peace. And so the prophets preached peace, even though Assyria, the superpower to the north, was about to bring destruction to them. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 5 of the book of Micah, the Bible says, Prophets that make my people err, they bite with their teeth, and cry peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Micah said they bite with their teeth. The original word for bite is what a word that was used to describe the bite of a poisonous snake. And Micah is saying here that these false prophets are as treacherous as serpents. What came out of their mouths was deadly poison. Preachers that were on the take and were making it a business instead of a ministry. Oh, what a crying shame that supposed men of God would not tell the truth and they would only say what people want to hear. And I have news for you, friend. We're there today as well. Uh, all you have to do is look around and all around today you'll see that this describes so many quote-unquote ministries today. In 2 Timothy 4.3, the Bible says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts will they heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. Preachers today of mega churches who preach feel-good messages. TV evangelists who've got more bling on their finger than sense in their head. Who preach prosperity gospel and try to bring about uh, only positive messages and only things that will make people feel good. That's what the Bible talks about when it says they'll heap to themselves having itching ears. It is the God-given responsibility of every preacher to preach the whole gospel and the whole counsel of God. And if a preacher does not preach against sin so as not to offend, he is not doing his congregation any favors. And that's what was happening 
in the time of Micah. Instead of preaching the truth, they were preaching whatever the people wanted to hear. There was religious corruption. Not only was there religious corruption uh, but there was, and political tension, there was moral chaos. And this follows the first two. If you have religious corruption, you're going to have moral chaos. It was every man for himself, the rich ripping off the poor, the leaders taking bribes, everyone cheating everyone else. Uh, merchants couldn't be trusted. Uh, the leaders couldn't be trusted. People couldn't even be sure of their own family. And if you look at these three, th those different phrases, one thing is clear. Micah was writing as if he was reading our newspapers every day, in our, in, whether it be the, the uh, World News or whether it be the USA Today. All that's missing is COVID. That's all we find missing in the book of Micah to what's going on in our world today. So Micah faced a world of problems, and he wrote condemning the sin and the hypocrisy that was rampant among God's people. In no uncertain terms, he warned them of judgment to come. He was the type of preacher who loved God's people enough to preach to them the truth, whether or not they wanted to hear it. But then in the middle of all this judgment, in the middle of all of Micah's preaching and in the middle of all of his uh, uh, basically uh, uh, impending doom that's coming their way, we see this passage that we could call the Christmas list of Jesus. Dropped into uh, really kind of a severe passage of scripture, we find this passage and it's only three verses long and it tells us exactly what God wants from you for Christmas this year. You can get this for the one who has everything. And he does, doesn't he? he? Owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but you can get him this for Christmas, and it will please your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We start out in verses 6 and 7, and they give us what God does not want for Christmas. And so he asks in six, verse 6, wherewithal, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? This, they begin out with a quality sacrifice. Wherewithal shall I come? Then he asks, shall I come with a calves of a year old. The people in Micah's time have heard the words of warning, and now they want to know, what does God want from us? The first answer here, the first question that they have, deals with the quality of sacrifice. A calf that was a year old was considered the prime sacrifice uh, for, uh, for their sin, and yet uh, they asked if that's what they should bring, and maybe God will be pleased if we bring the very best of what we have. The answer is no. And my friend, may I say to you this morning, the very best of our works are not enough to please God. The very best we have to offer. You cannot bring quality sacrifice to the Lord and have him pleased with you this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 7 verse 18. The Bible says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Uh, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Paul was, uh, when he looked at himself honestly and he wrote that passage, he says, look, I know looking at myself, there's nothing good within me. There's nothing that we can bring to God. In and of ourselves, we cannot offer God anything to earn his favor. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, you'll find the story of Cain and Abel. 
the first two brothers uh, that, God, that, that Adam and Eve had, the first children, and they uh, grew up, and the Bible says Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. Now, God had taught them. The Bible says that uh, Abel brought his offering by faith, and so faith cometh by hearing, the Bible says. So we know that somewhere along the line, God had taught Adam and Eve, and they had taught their children uh, had that, that, uh, how to approach him. And in chapter 3, verse uh, 21, it indicates that there had to be a blood sacrifice. And so when it came time to bring their sacrifice to God, Abel did what God had said, and he brought a lamb to sacrifice. Cain, though, brought of the fruit of the ground. He brought his best that he had to offer. Remember, he was a farmer. So I don't know exactly what he brought, but we can assume that it was the best of what he had. And so he brought that to God, and the Bible says his offering was rejected. It might have been the best. It might have been the best he could offer from what his own works, but it was not what God had asked for. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so Cain brought a bloodless offering from the cursed earth. Now, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I have to believe that Cain, just like so many in the world today, offered his best. Now, his offering may have been sincere, but it was not what God had asked for. And what we have to offer in and of our own works is not sufficient for a holy God. The Bible says in Isaiah that our, our, our righteousness, the best we have to offer, is filthy rags to the Lord. And so Cain was not accepted. We see all throughout the word of God that one's own works is not enough to please God. Abel did as God commanded. He brought a sheep and God accepted that gift. You know what that lamb represented that Abel brought? He brought that lamb and they put it to death and they sacrificed it to the Lord. That lamb represented one day down the road there's another lamb. The lamb of God would hang on a cross and he would pay for your sins and mine. That sacrifice is what covers our sin and that's the only way that we can have our sins forgiven. Cain brought the best of his works and was rejected. Quality of sacrifice was not what God was after. All right, they move on in verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Uh, so, okay, if quality of sacrifice is not it, well, then it's got to be quantity of sacrifice. Hey, will a thousand rams do or rivers of oil? We'll bring on much for the Lord then. If it's not quantity, it's got, if it's not quality, then it's quantity. The idea here is that we impress God with all that we do. He required one ram for a sin offering. What if we offer him the whole herd? And what if we give him rivers of oil? Surely that would make God happy. The idea is that extravagant sacrifice would convince God of, this, of their sincerity, and surely that would bring mercy from him? The answer again is no. That's not going to do it. That's not what God wants. In, in the same manner, uh, it does not matter what we do. We cannot earn God's favor. doesn't matter how little. doesn't matter how much. doesn't matter how hard we try. There's nothing we can offer in and of ourselves that earns God's favor. I, I, one of the saddest passages in the New Testament, I always think 
of my religious unsaved family when I read these verses found in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth my, the will of my Father which is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to prophesy, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, that's quality works, and in thy name done many wonderful works, that's quantity works. And Jesus said, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Oh, there's many people in the world today that are offering their very best. And they're not only offering their very best, but they're doing as much as they can to gain favor from God. And Jesus one day will look them eyeball to eyeball and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because you see, friend, it is not quality of sacrifice. It is not quantity of sacrifice that will please the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get to what will in just a moment. The third thing, they, they don't stop here. They continue in verse number seven. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Now we're talking about the ultimate sacrifice. Now, not only, this is an immoral suggestion. In no place, this is a pagan thing when people sacrifice their own child. But uh, yet, the point they're making here is if they offer their ultimate sacrifice, even if they give their firstborn sons, would the Lord then be pleased and forgive their sins? But you don't find this on the list. This is not what God wanted. And we understand the thinking here. Surely, if, surely I can do something to earn God's mercy and forgiveness. Lord, whatever it is, whatever you want, I'll do it. They actually thought that God would trade forgiveness for sacrifice. And he never will. He never has, and he never will. Uh, they, they, in essence, they thought that God could be bought and God can't be bought. Just because their wicked prophets and the preachers in Micah's day could be bought with money, just because they could be swayed because of what people wanted, God will never be bought. And so uh, they, we today see the same thing. People will want to do something uh, to try to earn salvation or merit with God. For some reason, mankind has less of a problem with works than they have with faith. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel had told Saul, King Saul, the wipe, God had told him to wipe out the Amalekites. And uh, so you know the story. Saul did not do the job as he should have. He kept the king alive. He kept many of the uh, livestock alive. And in verse 13 of Samuel 15, uh, he said, hey, basically, he said, I did what God wanted, but I did more. I saved some of the animals for sacrifice. And then we have that well-known verse, verse 22. You've probably heard it before. Hath God as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Oh, we are, we, again, humankind doesn't have as much problem with sacrifices as they do with obedience. God doesn't want sacrifices. God wants obedience. And that's what he's looking for. So what's wrong here? See, these answers, all that they, the, the three suggestions that they're giving, shall we offer this? And they up the ante every time. And these suggestions all point to one thing. They deal only with the outside, not with the inside. You see, friend, you can be a good Christian and have a hard heart. You can be a Sunday school teacher and yet be far away from God. 
You can serve in the church and have no real personal relationship with the Lord at all. You can do all these things on the outside and the inside uh, not be right with God. God rejected every offer that was made here uh, of the Israelites because they completely missed the point. They wanted to make a deal with God. God wanted their hearts. Let me ask you today, friend, have you ever found yourself there? Oh, I'll do this, I'll do that, making, trying to make deals with God. Well, let's get to the list of the right answer in verse number 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? And here we have the list. This verse has been called the heart of the Old Testament. Some have said it's the greatest verse in all of the Old Testament. It sums up what God really wants from you and me. This is a verse we ought to commit to memory. We ought to write it down on a card and keep it in front of ourselves or print it out and keep it in a place we can look at every day. It tells us what God wants in your life. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. He starts out with do justly. The Hebrew word is mishpat. It means, uh, it's often a word used in the Old Testament to uh, 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 talk about God's own character, to apply to God's character, and that fact that he is just. He is absolutely fair and righteous in his dealings. He gives each person exactly what they deserve. Justice means what is morally right. One of the reasons that they were in captivity in the first place is that they did not live justly, according to Zechariah 7 and 8. Do justly, this verse says. In other words, act in a just, fair way towards others. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Does that sound familiar? It's called the golden rule. Your grandma taught it to you probably. Do right by others. In fact, Jesus talks about the same thing in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Hey, we ought to treat others with respect. We ought to constantly show the love of Christ in our lives. Do justly, it says. And then it says to love mercy. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is in your power to harm. You have the power to harm them, but you show forgiveness or compassion toward them. This speaks of the way we treat others. The Hebrew word is chesed. It means zeal uh, toward anyone in love and kindness. Zeal, that excitement, that desire. You want to show love. You want to show kindness to others. You're eager to do so. It means loving the unlovely, even when they don't love you back. It, mean, it speaks to our obligation to care for people who don't care for us. Now, in just a few days, 2020 will be history. I'd like for you to just take a moment, mental exercise, and think over the past year and ask yourself, how has God treated you this year? Has God blessed you? Then bless others. Has God forgiven you? Then forgive others. Has God lifted you up? When you were down, then go out and lift someone else up when they are down. Has God overlooked your faults? Then overlook the faults of others. And we could go on and on down a long list. 
One reason we're told to love mercy is because God himself delighteth himself in showing mercy. The Bible says in Psalm 103.8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Plenty, aren't you glad he's plenteous in mercy? Because we so often need it. You and I are condemned because of our sin. The Bible says in John 3.18, He that believeth on me is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath believed not on the name of the only Son, begotten Son of God. He in his mercy, Jesus Christ, came. God sent his Son in his mercy. John chapter 3 verse 16, well-known verse, For God so loved the world that he, sent his only, that he gave his only begotten Son, uh, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He goes on, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He has mercy on us when we deserve no mercy. Oh, friend, then we ought to love mercy. We ought to love mercy for no other reason than he that had so much mercy on us, can we not have a little mercy uh, with others? And then he ends up, humility. Walk humbly with thy God. Humility is such a needed trait today. Too many people think too highly of themselves, don't they? We find ourselves in that situation all the time where we think higher of ourselves than we ought to. Truly, he that falls in love with himself will have no rivals, all right? He'll be alone in doing so. Uh, we all struggle to some extent with pride. The word humbly comes uh, from the Hebrew word tsana, which means to be modest, to be lowly. It speaks of an attitude that is the opposite of pride. What is humility? Humility is having the right view of yourself uh, because you have a right view of God. Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. It is not self-pity. The woe is me, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. That's not humility at all. That's actually another form of pride. Self-pity is. Uh, humility is thinking about yourself less. And what is pride? Pride is having too large of a view of yourself because you have too small a view of God. When your God is big, you'll be small, and you won't have a problem with pride. That's just how it works. If you have a small God and you see yourself as a big person, you've got a problem with pride. Remember David? When David faced Goliath, he wasn't, he, I mean, I'm sure he was scared, humanly speaking, but, boy, you don't see much fear in those verses, and the reason was because he had a really, really, really big God. They all thought Goliath was big. David said, he's nothing compared to my God, and so he had a big God. He had no problem uh, with pride at that time. Humility is recognizing that God made me. Any gifts and talents that I have, God gave me those. And so I'm not going to be upset if somebody else has more than I have. I'm simply going to do the best that I can with what God gave me. That's what humility will do for you. If we live that way, it'll save us so much trouble. We won't have to get in a power struggle with others. We won't be bitter if someone else has more. We won't be angry if, uh, at the silly comments that people make about us. Humility enables us to be who we are in Christ. You, you won't spend as much time worrying about what others think. 
I like what one person says, you probably wouldn't worry about what other people think of you if you knew how seldom they do. It would help us to remember that, wouldn't it? When uh, my son Tim was seven years old, he was really into motorcycles and uh, loved to ride with me on mine. And I gave him a project one day while I went to work. I thought I'd maybe try to keep him out of the, my wife's hair a little bit and say, I'd give him something to do. I said, I want you to take this. This is a May, 9th, or May 6, 2009 edition. This is the, the actual edition that I gave my son, Cycle Trader. And so I told him, when I'm going to work today, I want you to go through this magazine. I want you to think about it, spend some time with it, and just imagine I was going to buy you any motorcycle in this whole magazine. And I want you to circle that bike. So take some time. You've got to find the right one. I mean, that's an important decision, right? Let's just imagine. It's pretend, okay? We're not going to really do it, but let's just pretend I'll buy you any bike that you want in here. And then you, tonight when I come home, we'll look at which one that is. Well, I came home that night, and uh, I asked him about it, and he had it. He said, yep, he did it. And I don't know how well you can see from there. Every bike circled there, every bike circled there. About 90% of the whole magazine, they're all circled. They're all circled. See them? You can see why I hung on to this. Even on the back cover, they're all circled, every single one of them. And so, yes, I circled the one I want. And uh, I, I got a good chuckle out of it, and you see why I kept the thing. It's just a funny reminder of something that happened then. But isn't that the way we are? When we want, we want, we want, we want. And uh, we want more. And then we finally think, oh, finally I have an, ooh, I want that. You know, we just, that's how we live. We constantly see something we want. We live in want of other things. Here we have God's list. There's only three things on it. Justice, mercy, humility. Properly applied, these three words form the whole of your Christian duty. If you have these things, God will be pleased. If not, nothing else makes much of a difference. Uh, this brings us back to Micah. Why did God not accept all their sacrifices? Why would he turn down their suggestions? Because they offered him everything except the one thing that he really wanted, their hearts. That's what they withheld on their list. The religion God approves is the religion of the heart. Outward religion is absolutely useless unless the heart belongs to God. You see, God is not after what you can do and what you can offer. He is after you. That's what he wants. He wants your heart. You can fake a lot of religious activity, but the heart doesn't lie. Does he have your heart today? What does God want from me at Christmas time and every other day of the year as well? Justice, mercy, humility. Those are all matters of the heart. They are not connected. They are not. Uh, made up of works. They are matters of the heart. Now, they will result in good works, but they're not made up of works. That's why 
Jesus came. Matthew chapter 12, verse 18 says, He will show judgment to the Gentiles. There you have your judgment. When Mary sang of Jesus' birth, she said this in Luke 1.50, And his mercy is on him that fear him. There's your mercy. And then in chapter 1, verse 52, she sang, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted the low degree. There is the humility lifting up the humble. And that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ came, and he came to establish justice. He came to show mercy. He came to lift the humble. What a blessing. We saw the question last week, do you have room? Is there room in your heart for Jesus? It comes from Luke 2, 7, when she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a ranger because there was no room for him in the inn. After 2,000 plus years, Jesus Christ still knocks at the door of your heart. Will you make room for him? Christian, he wants your heart. Child, if you're here today and you're, you're not a child of God, you're not, you don't know for sure if you're saved, and you don't know for sure if, if something happened to you right now, you don't know for sure if you'd go to heaven or not. Can I tell you that God above all wants your heart? You don't want your works. There's not enough works you could do in a thousand lifetimes to earn your salvation. He wants your heart. Will you give Jesus that this year? There's a poem, What Shall I Give Him, Poor As I Am. If I were a shepherd, I'd give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'll do my part. What shall I give him? I'll give him my heart. And that's what he really wants, after all. Have you ever done that? Uh, have you ever given him your heart? You give yourself to Jesus, you'll be absolutely amazed what he'll do with you and through you. It's an amazing thing what Jesus can do when a life is placed into his hands. One time on a hillside, there were 5,000 people and their families, uh, 5,000 men and their families were gathered. There was nothing to eat and Jesus took a little lunch that a boy told him, you can have my lunch. And Jesus took that little sack lunch and multiplied it and fed all those people. If Jesus can do that with a little sack lunch, imagine what he can do with a life if you just give him your heart. It's an amazing thing. No decision is more important. No one else can make it for you. If you aren't ready today, there's nothing I can do to compel you to make that decision because it's a heart decision. But the Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, John 1.12. Let me ask you today, friend, have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever taken that step in your life? If not, don't let this year wrap up. Don't let this day wrap up before you make that decision. And then, dear Christian, if you're here and you say, yes, I've done that, I'm a child of God, let me ask you this year, does Jesus Christ have your heart? Oh, I do this, I do that, I do this. He's not, I'm not talking about sacrifices. I'm talking about obedience. Does he have your heart? Justice, mercy. That's what he's after. He's after justice, mercy, humility. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture.